Hey, a couple of exciting things have happened since we've last been together. One, we got a new stage. This is exciting. Uh, a lot of amazing things to come um, in the coming years from this stage and this worship center. We're excited about the renovations taking place. Secondly, the Chiefs are going to the Super Bowl. All right, now I expect you all to get that loud and excited when we're preaching the gospel this morning. Okay. Um, Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Nick. Uh, I'm the student minister here at BSCC, and I'm thankful that you're here with us uh, this morning. Today, we are continuing forward in our series, Every Day, in which over the course of the last several weeks, we've been exploring uh, the words of Jesus in Scripture, most commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. And depending on your church background, you may be pretty familiar with uh, this prayer, and you may even know it by heart, and some of you, um, some others of you maybe not, and that's okay. My first real exposure to this prayer came when I was in high school. Um, our football team, like many others, had this tradition to kneel and, and lock hands and to kind of chant the Lord's Prayer together uh, before we ran out of the tunnel um, onto the field before the game. And, you know, it was really cool to me back then, but kind of thinking back on it now, I'm like, man, that's kind of a, kind of a weird thing to do. Like, <laughs> I went to a public school, you know, most of the guys I played football with certainly didn't follow Jesus. And honestly, I had no idea uh, what I was even praying. You know, I had no idea of the significance or the weight of the words, um, what they, they carried that I was praying at the time. I just knew that I'd seen them do this in, in the movie Friday Night Lights, and it got me super pumped up, you know, like ready to run through a brick wall. Um, I still remember the first time I was a part of this tradition before a game. I had heard the Lord's Prayer before, but I definitely didn't know all the words, which was kind of embarrassing because I claimed to be a Christian. Um, and so I kind of stumbled and mumbled my way through it while the majority of the team chanted it in confidence. Then at the end, toward the end of the prayer, you know, we get to the part where it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And everyone says amen together. And I thought it was over. Well, then in unison, everyone shouts at the top of their lungs, let's go! And... <laughs> I about needed to change my uniform after that. Um, over time, I, I slowly memorized all the words to, to the Lord's prayers. We recited them before the game, and I became confident in knowing it. And then a little while later, um, I was growing more in my faith. It was later in high school. And I remember I stumbled across these words of Jesus in Scripture for the first time, and I was very surprised to find out that the words, let's go, weren't actually a part of the prayer. <laughs> It wasn't until many years later that I truly began to understand the significance uh, of what Jesus was communicating to us through these words in this prayer. And after years of reciting them as some sort of kind of hollow and empty tradition, God broke through my hard head and helped me begin seeing that these aren't just some words we recite to say a good prayer. You know, these aren't just some magic formula of a prayer that puts us in a righteous standing with God. Rather, what Jesus is doing is modeling for us a heart that is truly abandoned to God, what that looks like and what that sounds like. You know, when we dive into the words of this prayer and we let it transform us, it begins to shape how we see God, ourselves, and his mission. And so the goal of this series is to look below the surface at what Jesus is really communicating. So when we look back at what we've studied so far, we see that we've prayed our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. And, and Dave helped us understand that this is a, a model, uh, or he's modeling for us an address of deep connection and intimacy with the Father. And then we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, and this is another model of, of an attitude of great humility and abandonment of self for the higher calling of God's purpose. Last week, um, we studied, give us today our daily bread, and, and Dave helped us understand that this is a request of, of great faith and trust and dependence upon God to provide for our needs, for the things that we need. And then we come to our portion for this morning, and Jesus continues by praying, and forgive us our debts as we also 
have forgiven our debtors. The topic for this morning isn't an easy one, forgiveness. You know, this is kind of one of, forgiveness is kind of one of those Christian buzzwords that like us church folk like to use and throw around, but maybe we're not really that good at putting into practice. You know, we all like the idea of the first part of what Jesus says here, forgive us our debts. You know, we say, yes, Lord, forgive me of my sins, my wrongs, my debts that I've, I've wronged you and, and remove that punishment that I deserve. Thank you, Lord. And, and the amazing gospel truth is that he does Right? Jesus replaces our, our deserved punishment with undeserved mercy. But the main thing that I'd like to focus on this morning is the second half of this sentence. Jesus starts by saying, forgive us our, our debts, and then he says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. For the first time in this prayer, something that we ask for elicits an active response. You know, the prayer began with a word of worship. It continued with a prayer of abandonment, and then it humbly asked for what we need. But now, for the first time, we encounter something that we must do. Now, uh, is there anyone in the, the room today who would say that they're good at extending forgiveness? It's okay to raise your hand. I'm going to give you. We got, you, you want to come up here and preach this sermon? <laughs> you know, I, I used to think that I was good at forgiveness, at extending it, I, I was wrong. <laughs> I realized as I was putting together my thoughts for the sermon, it's a lot easier to preach about forgiveness when you're not in the middle of trying to extend it. Uh, I, I'm not going to give you all the specific details, but I just want you to know this morning that I'm preaching from the trenches of this, all right? This isn't just some high and mighty concept, but this is something that I'm wrestling through right now and certainly am not perfect at. And so today, as, as we dig into this, you know, I'm not going to try to give you all the answers to all the questions you have about forgiveness, but what I do hope to give you are a couple of biblical principles that have helped me and are helping me now um, as I practice this, what we're going to be, what we're going to find to be this incredibly shocking and even offensive idea of forgiveness. But before we dive into those two main points, I think it's important for us to talk a little bit about why forgiveness is such a difficult thing for us to extend, and then a little bit about what forgiveness is not. So let's start by talking about why forgiveness is a difficult thing to extend. The word that Jesus uses here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, when he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, is the Greek word ephiemi. It's the Greek word of fear me, and this word is used often throughout the New, New Testament in a variety of different contexts. Along with being translated as the word forgive, it carries with it the connotation of leaving something behind, of leaving someone unpunished or sparing someone of something that they deserve. And when we place those meanings in this specific context, what we are praying and asking God for for ourselves is mercy. Right? We, when we ask God for forgiveness, what we are asking him for is that he would leave us unpunished, that he would spare us of something that we know we deserve because of something that we have done against him. And the issue, and why I think forgiveness is such a difficult thing for us, is that in this prayer, we are then flipped positions and put into the place of God. We shift from being the recipient of forgiveness to now being the giver of forgiveness. Now we must leave behind the wrong that someone has done to us. We must leave our debtors unpunished. We must spare our debtors of something that we think they deserve. And so we find ultimately that what we're leaving behind, what we must spare, is our pride. We must give up our need to hold grudges over people and to hang onto records of wrongs because forgiveness is, is giving up the need to hold an offense over someone's head. I believe that God calls us to forgive because it's in accordance with his heart of justice. He calls us to relent our anger, our hurt, our pain over to him and humbly give up control of the situation. You know, forgiveness, I believe, is an abandoned outcome to God. 
And this shouldn't be surprising to us based on the very makeup of the word itself. When, when you look at the word forgiveness, it's forgiveness. The very word give is right in the middle of it. And that's because when we extend forgiveness, what we are doing is we are giving up our pride and we are giving away mercy. Right? We are giving up pride and we are giving away mercy. And so forgiveness is such a difficult thing because we're making a conscious decision to say, okay, God, I'm giving up my need to control the situation and I am trusting you in you to work it through. Now, I don't know about you, but I am not very good at giving up control. <laughs> you know, I, I like to be in control of situations and determine exactly how they're going to pan out, exactly how they're going to play out. And so if I forgive, you know, how can I be sure that, that they'll never do it again? Or how can I be sure that they'll show some sort of remorse or sorrow for what they've done to me? And what I think we're actually asking most of the time is, how can I be sure that this person will feel bad for the pain and the heartache that they've caused me? By forgiving our debtors, we are giving up our pride, and we are abandoning the outcome to God. And that's why it's such a difficult thing for us. Because in that, we actually have to care more about the needs of somebody else who has wronged us than even what we would consider our own needs, and that's a pretty radical call. And so I think we would all agree that forgiveness is a pretty difficult thing, and so I think it's important for a holistic understanding of forgiveness for us to understand a few things, a few ideas of what forgiveness is not. Um, author Lewis Meads, who during his lifetime authored many books on the topic of forgiveness, claims that in order to be a people who truly forgive, who truly understand what forgiveness is, we have to know then what forgiveness is not. And so in, one of, in a chapter of one of his books, he kind of lays these th three ideas out. The first thing he says is that forgiving is not excusing. Forgiving is not excusing. You know, someone has probably done something to hurt you, to disappoint you, or inconvenience you before. And what'd you say to him? You said, no big deal. Hey, that's, that's no problem. You know, don't worry about it. Um, and you've probably even had someone respond to you that way before as well if you've done something against them. But that's not forgiving. That's excusing. And when we do that, it's not always necessarily a bad thing. But excusing is not forgiving. The second thing he says is that forgiving is not overlooking. You know, sometimes something will happen um, that we just don't want to deal with for whatever reason. And so what do we do? We blow it off. We don't deal with it, maybe even pretend like it never happened. We overlook it. So again, overlooking may not always necessarily be a bad thing, but overlooking is not forgiving. The third thing he says then is that forgiving is not tolerating destructive behavior. Forgiving is not tolerating destructive behavior. Oftentimes there are people in our lives that bother us, hurt us, disappoint us, and we just kind of accept that that's who they are and that's what they do. And sometimes accepting and tolerating people where they are at isn't a bad thing, but that is not forgiving. And I don't know about you, but when I read those three things, I thought each time I was like, yep, yeah, done that, mm-hmm, done that one too, dang it, I've also done that one. And for a lot of my life, I thought I was a forgiving person because I was able to excuse, overlook, or tolerate uh, people's behavior toward me. I had this nice little checklist in my mind that if I could just brush off that, that snide remark, look past that offensive comment, tolerate the way that so-and-so treated me, you know, I must be a forgiving person. And I think that that can be true for a lot of us. You know, if we aren't careful, forgiveness can turn from a conscious, intentional decision to leave behind our pride and to give up our need to hold something over someone's head and turn into, oh, it didn't bother me that much, so I guess I'm a forgiving person. Forgiveness is a difficult thing to extend because it requires us to expend energy. It requires us to stretch our emotions. It tests our love. It may even require you to interact with someone who you don't like very much. 
And so why even do it? You know, why, why is forgiveness such an important thing? Why do we talk about it so much? Like, isn't God's forgiveness enough for us? Why do we also have to extend it? And here's my answer and, and really the main point for today. The ability to extend forgiveness is the sign of a heart that has been transformed by forgiveness. The ability to extend forgiveness is the sign of a heart that has been transformed by forgiveness. The point of forgiveness isn't to manipulate God's hand into forgiving us. You know, we don't forgive other people so that he'll forgive us and, and you know, get into heaven. That's not how that works. The point of forgiveness isn't to be virtuous. It's not to prove some, that you're some righteous person who can stand on a higher moral ground than everyone else. And we don't even forgive to erase the past. Author uh, Lewis Meads again says, Forgiving does not erase the bitter past. A healed memory is not a deleted memory. Instead, forgiving what we cannot forget creates a new way to remember. We change the memory of our past into a hope for our future. That's good stuff. You know, we forgive because of the hope that forgiveness has given us. We've received something astonishing, and so then we respond in a radical way. And so I want to spend the rest of our time together this morning discussing two ideas that I hope will help you uh, become a more forgiving person. I think the first thing that we should do to become a more forgiving person is to remember the forgiveness that God has extended to you. Remember the forgiveness that God has extended to you. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul gives us kind of this, uh, this shocking and what I think to be incredibly difficult command. In, in verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, I want you to notice something about this text. Our action stems from our identity. Our action in this text stems from our identity. And I told our students this last week, and I'm going to tell you again this morning, it's impossible to know who you are supposed to be until you know whose you are. I really believe that. I, I think it is impossible for us to know what kind of people we are supposed to be, how we are supposed to live, until we know who we belong to. And before Paul gives us any sort of command about what we are to clothe ourselves with or what we are to do, he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Here's the significance of that. He's reminding us of our title. He's reminding us of our identity. And so then, if we are a people who are, are chosen and holy and, and dearly loved, doesn't it make sense that our actions should reflect those of the one to whom we belong? And this is why we are urged to forgive, then, as the Lord forgave you. And, you know, I think for a lot of us, this is one of those, those ideas, those concepts. We've heard it so many times. We're like, yeah, man, I know that. Like, I get that. And we've forgotten how absolutely shocking of a command this is. Let me remind you of how shocking this is. Ephesians chapter 2, verses, starting in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, down to verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us what? Alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Let me give you another one, Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your, in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you what? Alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. 
He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Man, that is incredibly strong language. He canceled the charge, the legal charge that was against us. He was our lawyer, our defendant, and our judge, and he went on behalf of us, and he canceled the debt by taking the sentencing on himself. Man, that's good. And the sentencing was death. Romans 6.23 tells us that, that the wages of sin is death. Now, I earn a wage because of the job that I have, right? Most of you in here probably do. We earn a wage. A wage is something that we have earned because of something that we've done. And so that tells us that we deserve death because of the way we separated ourselves from God by our sin. But that's not all that Romans 6.23 says. It says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've received this gift of eternal life only because he canceled our charge of legal indebtedness that stood against us. We faced an insurmountable debt and he paid every single penny of it. And then what Paul says here in verse 15 is, was also shocking and also dangerous. He says in verse 15, again, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now let me translate that into our modern day language for you to help you understand a little bit better. What he's saying is the crucifixion was a parade. During this time in Roman culture, they would celebrate their military victories and the plunder from those victories in what was called a triumphal procession or a Roman triumph. The closest thing that we have to this today would, would be a parade. All right? And these triumphs are depicted in many Roman artifacts like what you see here on the screen, and they were used as kind of a, a form of propaganda. And I, I encourage you to look it up later when you leave here. Um, I'm not, not going to go into much more detail than that. It's fascinating. Um, but the point of these triumphs was to publicly celebrate a victory, to parade the spoils, and most of all, to send a message to the enemies of the Roman Empire that they were not to be messed with. And so what Paul is saying then, right here, is that the crucifixion of Jesus, which keep in mind was intended by the Roman Empire to end his revolution, was actually the equivalent of his parade, of his triumphal procession. Despite being such a counterintuitive thought, he's saying that the crucifixion parades victory. The crucifixion parades freedom. The crucifixion parades a kingdom. And it's a kingdom that is defined by forgiveness of sin that is ruled by a king who is responsible for that forgiveness at the expense of his own life. That is a shocking kind of forgiveness. Which is exactly why Paul's command in Colossians 3 to forgive as the Lord forgave you is shocking because we are then called to replicate that kind of impossible forgiveness. This kind of forgiveness is a conscious, intentional choice to abandon yourself for the sake of God's glory by doing for others what he then has done for you. Which I think is exactly why Paul tells us as God's chosen people who are holy and dearly loved to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Think about this idea of, of clothing yourself. We all do this each morning. You know, you wake up, you go over to your closet, and, and you look through, and you decide what you're going to wear, right? And as followers of Jesus, this is no different. We wake up every day, and we decide if we're going to be compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient. You know, we choose those things. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not just like naturally very many of those things. I have to wake up every day and say, okay, for the sake of God's glory today, I'm going to clothe myself with all of these things. Because like we choose what to wear, we choose who we will be. 
And then over all these virtues, Paul tells us in verse 14, we put on love. So it's like putting on a coat over the top of all these clothes. Love binds us together and makes those things possible. And so at the root of forgiveness, we find then is love. It's a love for God that says, okay, God, I may not want to love this person, but I'm going to choose to because I know the love that you have extended to me and I know the love that you have for them. And so guys, it's time for us to choose what kind of people we'll be. You know, are we going to hang on to our grudges and our anger and our, our bitterness forever? Are we going to hold offenses over people's heads? Are we going to be unrelenting in our unforgiveness? Jesus told a story in Matthew 18 that warned very strongly against being that kind of person. In Matthew chapter 18, uh, Peter comes up to Jesus and he asks him what I think we would all consider to be a pretty reasonable question. He says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? You see, Peter was probably feeling pretty good about himself to say seven times here, he probably thought he was being very merciful to extend forgiveness uh, that many times because it was custom in, in that time in their rabbinic law that the maximum number of times they would have to extend forgiveness was three. And so Peter, by saying seven, he's being very generous here. And what Jesus says back is shocking. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Now, it's not too difficult to guess that he didn't literally mean 77 times. He was using a hyperbole here to make a point that we should forgive indefinitely, without limits. He then goes on to tell a compelling story. He tells a story of a king who is wanting to settle his accounts with his servants. The servant um, who we find in this particular story was probably a governor serving under the king. And Jesus tells a story of this governor who he just owes this king an insane amount of money. He, he says, the text tells us that he owes him 10,000 bags of gold. Um, when they heard that number, their jaw would have hit the floor because 10,000 was the largest number that they had in their vocabulary at the time. Many scholars believe that in today's terms, this servant would have owed the king nearly $1 trillion. $1 trillion, this one man owed his king. And so we're talking an insurmountable amount of money. And then the king comes along and he decides he wants his money back. I think that's a pretty reasonable desire. He brings this governor before him who owes him all this money and he demands that he pays him back, otherwise he's going to sell his wife and his, his children into slavery. This was a legal Jewish practice at the time. But the amount he would receive for selling them into slavery wouldn't even put a dent in the total amount of money that this governor owed the king. And though, so the point of selling them wasn't for, to, to be repaid. The point of selling them was to punish him. But the governor falls on his knees before his master and he begs him, please be patient with me and I will pay you back everything. Now there's no way this could happen. Right? The king knows it. His promise to, to repay him is simply just stalling the inevitable. So what does the king do? He takes pity on the man. And in a shocking turn of events, he cancels the debt that he owes him and he lets him go. He canceled his due punishment and he lets him walk free. Sounds familiar. But that's not the end of the story. As soon as this governor who has been freed from this insurmountable debt leaves the king, he immediately goes and finds one of his servants who then owes him money. Now the man that he tracks down owes him about 100 silver coins, the text tells us. This would have been the equivalent of about five months worth of wages. So it's a hefty sum, no doubt, but it pales in comparison to what the governor owed the king at the beginning of the story. The governor then finds the servant, he grabs him by the neck and he tells him, pay me back what you owe me. Now, similar to what the governor did with the king at the beginning of the story, the servant falls on his knees before him and he begs, please be patient with me and I will pay you back everything that I owe you. But the governor refused to extend to him the same mercy 
that was given him by the king. He throws his servant into prison until he could repay him. And the other servants who were around kind of witnessed this. They saw what happened. They were, they were shocked by this and they went and they reported this to the king. And here's what happens next. Jesus says, then the master called the servant in, talking about the governor. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In, his, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. And then Jesus finishes the parable by saying this. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. How many of us, even though we have racked up the greatest debt ever and it has been canceled, fail to extend even a smidgen of the, the grace and the mercy that we've received. You know, we are called to forgive as the Lord forgave us because that debt that should have killed us was removed at the expense of the master. And that truth should change everything for us. Jesus says to forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So let me remind you that the ability to extend forgiveness is the sign of a heart that has been transformed by forgiveness. Step one in becoming a more forgiving person, I believe, is to remember how the Lord has forgiven you, how he has canceled your insurmountable debt and has given you freedom. The second step then, I believe, toward becoming a more forgiving person is this. We've got to remember who the real enemy is. Remember who the real enemy is. You know, I've heard a lot of sermons in my life, and to this day, um, I've, I've, the most memorable thing I've ever heard a preacher say, his name was Shane Wood, was, we've forgotten who the enemy is, and Satan loves it. He said, we've forgotten who the enemy is, and Satan loves it. Church, listen, if you are in Christ, if you claim him as your Lord, if you submit to his authority and you obey his teaching, you have one enemy, and that is Satan. One enemy. But my fear is that we've forgotten that. And listen, I'm not accusing you. I am telling you, I am right there with you. All right? I often forget who our real enemy is, and I think that that's exactly what he wants the enemy exists to confuse us and to lead us toward destruction. I mean, think of the very first words we have recorded in Scripture uh, of Satan. What does he do? He comes up to Adam and Eve and he says, did God really say, did God really say you shouldn't eat that, that fruit from the tree, right? And so why would we be surprised that he would come to us and tempt us and say, did God really say you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Are you sure that's what he said? Ah, because that sounds pretty hard. You know, maybe, maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you should just love those who are close to you and who are easy for you to love. You know, his goal is to convince us that God isn't good and that we can't trust him and what he commands us. What Satan does is he warps truth. And listen, most of the time, his tactic isn't to get us to believe some far-off crazy things. But rather, over time, slowly, little by little, shift us off course. And so when we hear Jesus say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Satan, on the other hand, says, nah, Nah, I just love those who are close to you, but your enemies, you don't have to love them, especially if they're threatening your safety, if they're threatening your comfort, if they're threatening your family. Oh, we don't stand for that. We take those people out. We protect ourselves at all costs. But listen, and you can disagree with me on this, and we can still be friends, but I just don't think that that's consistent with what we see of Jesus in the New Testament. You know, Jesus actually didn't protect his friends and his family from harm's way. Rather, what he did was he prepared them to endure it 
and he encouraged them by reminding them of the glory that was to come. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. That's because his mission and his allegiance were so much bigger and so much deeper than anything that existed in this world. Let me remind you of something else that he said in John chapter 18. Uh, he's finished praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas comes along to carry out his betrayal. The guards come up to Jesus, they seize him, they tie him up, and even though Peter tries to resist, uh, Jesus says, no, I must obey the Father's will. And so the guards take him and he eventually ends up before a man named Pontius Pilate, a Roman governor. And it's just a fascinating scene. Pilate begins to, to question Jesus to kind of get to the bottom of what is happening, and he's shocked to find that Jesus is not trying to resist anything that they're doing to him. Pilate's confused because he's heard the title King of the Jews thrown around for him, and so he just straight up says to him, he says, your own people, your chief priests have handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? And in the face of his betrayal, his arrest, his wrongful conviction, and his impending death, this is what he says. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus did not resist his, his persecution or his death because he knew who the real enemy was. And so this morning, church, I want to remind you who our real enemy is because if we aren't careful, and I know how easy it is to fall into this trap, we will forget and we will continue to make people the target of our anger and hatred who, according to the, the kingdoms of this world, if we're talking by the standards of this world, they are definitely our enemy. They are certainly our enemy. But if our loyalty and our allegiance lies with the king whose kingdom is not of this world, then we will stop seeing people as our enemies and start seeing them as God sees them. And we will do our part to bring that otherworldly kingdom here to earth. And there's no denying that that is a radical radical call, but I believe that that's gospel truth. And so we've got to understand the people who hold an opposing political view from us, they're not our enemy. Gay people are not our enemy. Transgender people are not our enemy. People who are pro-choice are not our enemy. People who, who follow different religions than us are not our enemy. Listen to me, if the kingdom that you belong to is not of this world, then even extremist terrorist groups are not our enemy. And the list goes on, but do you, you know what all those people I just listed have in common? We all share a commonality with them, every single one of us in the room, and it is that we are made in the image of God. Every human on this earth shares that distinct divine characteristic. There is nothing that someone can do to gain or lose it. It is stamped on us as a part of our created nature. And what Satan wants to do is distract us from that truth. He wants us to focus our time, our energy, our money, our resources into waging war against our fellow human beings who are created in the image of God and cause us to lose sight of the actual battle that we're in. Here's what Paul says about the actual battle that we're in in Ephesians 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Pastor and author Warren Wiersbe says, unless we know who the enemy is, where he is, and what he can do, we have a difficult time defeating him. And so it makes perfect sense that, that his goal is to confuse us, to distract us, and tur turn us toward waging war against each other, because when we wage war against each other, we do his job for him. Wearsby also says the important point is that our battle is not against human beings. 
It's against spiritual powers. We are wasting our time fighting people when we ought to be fighting the devil who seeks to control people and make them oppose the work of God. And so how do we defeat this enemy? How do we defeat Satan? I think we start by loving and praying for those who he wants to convince us are our enemies. And we don't succumb to letting mere humans being the, the, the object and the focus of our wrath, but we learn radical forgiveness of people and radical abandonment of self. You know, it's a lot easier to forgive a person, someone, when we see them as people and not as evil. When we dehumanize people, it becomes really easy to hold grudges, to hang on to, to bitterness, to wish bad things against them, and to even hate them. The key to forgiveness is seeing people as God sees them. Now, how do we do that? You know, how do we learn radical, gospel-focused, Christ-centered forgiveness? I think the answer is that we start with the small things. We've got to start with the small things. You've got to practice those. So make cookies for your rowdy neighbor. Serve your arrogant boss by doing something for him that he didn't ask you to do. Pray for that person who cuts you off in traffic. Lord knows I need to do that. Write a kind and encouraging note to someone who said something nasty about you. Start small. We can't expect to wake up and be able to extend radical forgiveness for life-altering offenses if we can't even do it for the small things. But as we learn to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us, and as we learn to see people as God sees them, our radical forgiveness may even have the power to transform our entire culture. Let me tell you a story. February 2nd, 1952 was a day that 25-year-old Jim Elliott had dreamed of for years. As a little boy growing up in Portland, Oregon, Jim would listen carefully as visiting missionaries told exotic stories about life in distant lands. He would ask questions and dream about someday being a missionary himself. From a young age, his heart was compelled to share the gospel with peoples of the world who did not have the opportunity to ever hear the name of Jesus. After years of praying and preparing, Jim answered God's call to take the gospel to the Quechua Indians in the South American country of Ecuador. On February 2nd, Jim and his missionary partner, Pete Fleming, boarded a ship and they set off on an 18-day journey from San Pedro, California to Quito, Ecuador. They spent nearly a year studying the language before moving their residence to the jungle where the Quechua Indians lived. Over the course of the next three years, these men experienced a fruitful ministry, bringing many of the Quechua people to Jesus. And during this time, Jim married a fellow missionary named Elizabeth Howard, and they, uh, they began their ministry together. As they ministered to the Quechua Indians, the missionaries would occasionally encounter the Alka people, who they had heard about as being this group of uncivilized people who were considered to be very violent and dangerous toward outside people. I mean, the very word Alka was a, a Quechuan word that meant savage. They were called this because they were known to kill any outsiders who tried to enter their area. And as Jim learned about these people and their story and the way that they lived, it became his dream and his goal to take the gospel of peace and love to the, to the Alka people. And on January 2nd, 1956, Jim, Elliot, and four other missionaries took a short flight over the Ecuadorian jungle to the home of the Alka people. Even though it was dangerous, Jim had no doubt that God wanted him to tell the Alkas about Jesus. They made a contact with them uh, by using a loudspeaker from the plane and then dropping down a gift basket to them. And after many months of contact similar to this, the Alcas even sent a gift back up in the basket to the plane. And Jim and the other missionaries felt the time had come to meet the Alcas face to face. One day, while they were flying over uh, Alca territory, the pilot spotted a strip of land on the beach that looked long enough to land the plane on. And so the plan was that they would land the plane and that the, the missionaries would get out and build a treehouse until that they could uh, make friendly contact. 
The missionaries were flown in one by one and they were dropped off on the beach and then the pilot flew over to the Aka village and they called them to come out to the beach where, where the missionaries were, where they had landed. After four days, finally an Aka man and two women appeared. It was not easy for them to understand each other because they only knew a few um, Alka phrases, but they shared a meal with them and they even took the man up in the plane for a flight. The missionaries tried to show sincere friendship to them and they asked them to bring others with them the next time that they came to visit. Now, for the next two days, the missionaries waited for other Alkas to return. And finally, on day six, two Alka women walked out of the jungle and Jim and Pete excitedly jumped down into the river and waded over to them. But as they got closer, these women did not appear friendly. Jim and Pete almost immediately heard a terrifying cry behind them as they turned around they saw a group of Alka warriors with their spears raised, ready to throw. Jim Elliott reached for the gun in his pocket. He had to make a decision instantly if he was going to use it. But he knew he couldn't because each of the missionaries had promised that they would not kill an Alka person who did not know Jesus in order to protect themselves from being killed. Within seconds, the Alka warriors threw their spears, killing all of the missionaries on the morning of January 8th, 1956. Later that afternoon of that day, Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, waited by the two-way radio to hear the pilot call his wife and discuss how things had gone that day like they normally did. But there was no call. As evening turned to night, the wives grew worried. They knew that the news was not good. The next morning, another missionary pilot flew over the beach to look for these men, and he saw only the badly damaged plane on the beach. News quickly spread around the world about the five missing missionaries, and the United States search team was sent to retrieve the bodies, and they found them, and they buried them. Jim Elliott's life tragically came to an end in his attempt to take the gospel message to the Alka Indians, but his story didn't end with his death. After Jim Elliott and the other four missionaries were brutally murdered, Jim's wife Elizabeth and her 10-month-old daughter and some family members of the other murdered missionaries, they committed to finishing what Jim and his friends had started. Within two years of their deaths, Elizabeth, among others, were able to go back to the Alka people, bridge the divide, and begin sharing the love of Christ with them. Many of the Alka people became believers in Jesus and they are now a friendly tribe today. There are still missionaries and people working and serving among them even to this day. And listen, this is a very radical story, but it's an incredible example that when we choose to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us, he will do mighty and powerful things in our lives and maybe even in the lives of others. But listen, Elizabeth and the others were only able to face the Alka people. They were only able to continue the mission that her husband died for because she extended the same forgiveness to them that she had received and she understood that those people were not her enemy. I'd like to conclude our message this morning by transitioning into a time of communion. Ultimately, the best example that we have of radical forgiveness comes from the one who gave us the command himself. Jesus didn't ask us to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors without first doing the same. He hung on a cross between two criminals as the crowd mocked him and hurled insults at him. And as he hung on the cross between two sinners, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if you have an issue with the call to radical forgiveness, I'm just going to be honest, you probably have an issue with Jesus. It's a radical call to forgive as the Lord forgave you because sometimes it requires forgiveness even in the face of death. And that goes against every single cultural expectation that we have. But you know, 
Jesus was really good at, at breaking cultural expectations. He was well known to show up at parties and to feast with sinners despite the reputation that it would give him with the religious people. And so my friends, I want you to know that today Jesus continues that ministry that we find in the Gospels. He showed up today to feast with sinners. He showed up today to feast with you and me. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we confess we need you. In humility, we pray that you would empower us, that you would fill us with your spirit. Forgiveness is a really hard thing. God, help us to continually reflect on the the idea of what it means to forgive as you have forgiven us. Help us to not let that message grow and fall deaf on our ears. Um, Help us to not forgive the power and the shocking nature of the forgiveness that you've extended to us. And God, I pray that you would help us grow in radical forgiveness, um, that we would be able to extend to others what you've extended to us because we don't see them as our enemies. We know who our real enemy is. And so, Father, we pray that you would use us to crush him through the forgiveness that we learn to extend. It's only by the power of your spirit this is possible, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.